Um, thank you again for uh, being with us today, uh, this Christmas Sunday, uh, Sunday before uh, Christmas. Um, if you are uh, just kind of popping in from out of town or from somewhere else, uh, warmest welcome to you. If you're back from somewhere, uh, it's really good to see you. Um, we are yeah, just really grateful to be able to worship together here. Um, we have a worship service on uh, Saturday, Christmas Day, uh, the 25th. Um, falls on, I guess it's the 25th every year, but it's on 25th this year also. So, um, yeah, 11 o'clock in the main, main sanctuary. Uh, you can join us for that time um, and worship together. Uh, I am part of this uh, email, um, email, I guess, group for a, a certain band. And I don't know if a, a, any of you guys are on this email list, but I got an email this week, and it, it said, "'Tis a season.'" Uh, and it kind of went on to say something to the effect of it is the season of Christmas, now six days away, where we uh, sing songs that include nouns and verbs that we have no idea the meaning of, right? Um, there, the story is about a little boy who um, was asked by a teacher. I think one of his teachers asked him, hey, um, besides Rudolph, do you know any of the other reindeer? What was the name of any of the other reindeer? And the boy said, uh, I know one of them is named Olive. And the teacher or the adult looked at, <laughs> looked at this child and said, no, I don't think there was a, a reindeer named Olive. And he said, yeah, there was. He said, Olive, the other reindeer, used to laugh and, and call him names. A lot of times we sing these songs without really understanding what they mean, without knowing the meaning behind it. What, anyone know what in the world um, it means when we sing O Tannenbaum? Anyone know what a Tannenbaum is? Some of y'all don't even know that song. That's okay. Um, uh, Troll the ancient Yuletide carol. What the heck does that mean? Troll the ancient Yuletide. Troll is a, you know, that little dude on Expedia.com, right? Isn't that a troll or a gnome or something like that? Uh, I think that word... Uh, when we sing it, it's supposed to mean uh, it's a verb. I, I believe it's a verb. Troll the ancient Yuletide carol. What is, what is a Yule? I don't know what that means. But a lot of things about Christmas that we don't quite understand. And one of these things, some of these things that we don't quite understand, that if we were to understand them, it would heighten and enhance and greatly increase our appreciation uh, for this season of Christmas. Um, one of these things that we don't quite get a lot is um, who is Jesus? What in the world did he come to do? And what does it mean that we celebrate him? The past few weeks, we've been looking at the names of Christmas, looking at the name of this child who came down into our world. We've looked at what it means that he is Emmanuel, God with us. We looked at what it means that his name is Jesus, who will save us from our sins. Last week, we saw that he's a wonderful counselor and a mighty God. And today, as we look into Isaiah chapter 9 again, we want to look into two other names that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus Christ came into the world that tell us not only who he is, but what he came to do for us. So uh, if you have your Bible, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start from verse 2 um, and read through verse 7. But we're going to um, obviously uh, hang out on verses six, um, on verse 6 mainly. So Isaiah verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. This is God's word. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for fire, for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and a government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. Um, if you were here last week, you're probably saying, wait, wait a second. That sounds exactly like the passage you read last week. It is um, the same passage. But uh, last week, we looked at what it means that his wonderful counselor, mighty God. We're going to look at the last two descriptions of him here. Um, but I don't know if you guys know this, but Christmas Day falls right around this season called uh, this time of the year called winter solstice. Did anyone know that? Anyone know that? Okay, Howard. That's it. I think the re- okay, and Danny. Okay, uh, some of y'all. Uh, I think you know, but you're a little bit shy to raise your hand. But uh, winter solstice is the time when, I think if I, uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a time when um, it, the night is the longest, right? It's the time of year, right? When the night is the longest and the night is the darkest and the night is the coldest. Uh, you can call this what you will, poetic justice, metaphorical genius, whatever. But on Christmas Day, when the night is the darkest, people would open up their Bibles and they would read this message of hope that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is a powerful, powerful thing when the people would understand this in the light of the seasons of the calendar. And so what is this light that is shining? What is this great light that has come to bring change and transformation? It says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Government will be on his shoulders. Uh, Again, last week we looked at this fourfold description. Wonderful counselor, don't we all need some wonderful counsel in our lives. Uh, mighty God. I think many of us need this hero to come to our rescue. Right? In their times when we're in need, uh, we need a hero, a warrior king to come and to save the day for us. Uh, we need an everlasting father. We need a prince of peace. Anyone need these things today? What does these mean? I want to talk about it today. So everlasting father, prince of peace. Very simple. The outline is really easy. It's just uh, straight out of this text. But what does it mean that Jesus is the everlasting father? I don't know. Uh, some of you may have a difficult time understanding what this means. I have a, had a very difficult time understanding this because in my understanding of the Trinity, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Then how is it that he is called the everlasting father? Is Isaiah, in describing who Jesus Christ is 700 years before the time, was his theology confused and was he mistaken in trying to put together the pieces of the Godhead. And I'll uh, be clear that, and Isaiah is clear that that's not what he's doing. Why in the world then can he say that Jesus, the child to come, the one who comes into the, the one whose eyes, uh, who, who we see him with our eyes, the one who is God with skin on, that he can be called the everlasting father. Well, in the time that Isaiah is writing, he's using language that was familiar to his people, as all authors do. We use language that is uh, contextualized to the people that we're talking to. So in Isaiah's day, uh, what, who would they call father? They would call a father uh, the royal, the royal father of a nation was their king. And so what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus Christ, the child to come, is going to be a king who will sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. That's what he's saying here. A king would, would do three things, and they, they would call him a father in this way. The first thing that a king would do is he would protect his people. He would protect his people as a father does. The other day, um, Olivia was 
Uh, All three of us were at home, and Olivia wanted to to vacuum the floor a little bit. So she took out her handheld vacuum cleaner, and she started vacuuming. And the noise was really loud, and so Manny got scared. And so what does she do? In her time of fear, in her time of need, she runs to her father for protection. She goes, (laughs) and she starts crying. And I pick her up, and I say, everything's going to be all right. And so we walked out into the garage, and, and all was good again, because that's what fathers do. They protect their children. In the same way, the children of Israel would go to their king, look to them for protection from their enemies. Not that Olivia was Manny's enemy, but that's what people would do. When Israel would be attacked, they would look at their enemies and they would say, oh, king, protect us. And kings would do that. Another thing that kings would do is they would provide for their people. And so they called their king their father because the kings would try to provide everything that the children of Israel would need. Just like Manny, everything she understands, well, she doesn't understand, but she will come to understand that in a sense, everything that comes to her, uh, either through mom's hand, is first comes through the hand of her father because her father is her provider. This is what kings would do. They would provide and they would protect. And so they would call the kings, they would call them our royal father, our, our great father. Now, this is, I think, something maybe a little bit foreign to us here in America because we don't have kings, but we do have presidents. And and we sometimes back in the day, our first president, we called him the father of our nation, the founding father. But I think it's a little bit easier to understand in certain other contexts where they still have this kind of dictatorial person over them. Um, I asked a couple of our guys yesterday, just kind of in in, in passing, uh, sent them a text message, say, what was the first word that your daughter ever spoke? And so I I think if you ask the father and you ask the mother, they may say different things. But um, I asked Eugene what uh, Evelyn's first words were. And he said, well, there was a a couple. One is a Korean word for mom, umma. That was the first word that she said. And then soon after that, she started saying, no, no, no. Um, That was Evelyn's first word. Then I asked Jason, what was Emmeline's first words? And and he said it was, I think it was ball, because daddy's a volleyball player. I think about Manny. Manny's first word was Jesus, and I'm just kidding. But <laughs> it's, it's, inter- it's interesting because uh, different children will say different things. About, well, different parents will say other first words were different things. If you go to a country, North Korea, I said, what, what was the first word your child ever spoke? I don't know what they would say, but... The first thing that parents are to teach their children, the first sentence, the first phrase that parents are to teach their children is, thank you, Father Kim Il-sung. That's the first thing that parents are to teach their children. They go to school, hey, it was a, parents get together. I don't know if they really do this in North Korea, but parents get together. Hey, it was the first thing your kid said. Thank you, Father Kim Il-sung. Oh, that was mine too. You know, that's, that's how it is. Because in, in North Korea, Kim Il-sung, is, he's kind of the one who uh, loosely put introduced communism into their country. He's the one who is seen as the, the, the father of their, of their nation. And so they look to him for provision, for protection, even though he's no longer alive. I don't know if you guys have seen um, the National Geographic documentary, Inside North Korea. Anybody seen that before? Okay. Same people, Danny and Howard. <laughs> You guys read this sermon. Okay. So, um, and then a few others. But uh, was it Lisa Ling or Laura Ling? One of, the, one of them, because one of them was, a, was, was captured in North Korea, and then the other one was the one who did this documentary. I think it was Lisa Ling. Anyways, I do this documentary, and it's about this, uh, this Nepalese eye surgeon, um, meaning an eye surgeon from Nepal, for those of you who don't know. Um, he's an eye surgeon, and it just kind of takes him. Uh, he, he goes to, basically his thing is he goes to different countries, and he does cataract surgery. A cataract is an, is an eye disease. I think you, you, you um, become blind because of it. 
But he goes around to these different nations and he does cataract surgery for, um, I don't know if he charges people, but North Korea, he didn't. And his mission, his goal when he went to North Korea was to do a thousand uh, surgeries for people. And so it just kind of uh, trails Dr. Ruit as he goes to different places and, and does these surgeries. And then it kind of highlights uh, different people who are getting the surgery and it follows them into their homes and what they eat and, and their story. And he does a thousand, over a thousand surgeries. And then the climactic moment of this documentary is at the very end, they're all gathered, these thousand people are gathered back in uh, the hospital where he does the surgery. They've all got bandages over their eyes, whichever eyes had surgery, and they obviously cannot see. They've been waiting. It's been a, a few days after the surgery. And the moment of truth comes where they take off the bandages to see if they can see. And it, again, this is a powerful metaphor that the blindness that they have is really a lot more deep than the physical blindness that they've got. But they're, they're blind. They can't see. And so they've got these, these things over their eyes. And one by one, they, they bring these people in. The first person, um, she's come with her dad. And uh, they take off the things, and she can barely open her eyes because it's, um, they've been closed or it's been dark for a long time. And so he takes a flashlight. The doctor takes a flashlight. He shines it in her eyes, and she's just kind of like, uh, you know, a little bit taken aback by it. And he, he says to the translator, tell her to touch my nose. And so she reaches out, and she touches his nose. And she says, uh, where's, your, where's your dad? And she points to her dad. And there's all these things. And one by one, they're tying all these people and they're filled with celebration. And every single one of them, the first thing they do, they say, I want to see the great father. And at the front of the hospital is a picture of their current president, Kim Jong-il, and his father, Kim Il-sung, the one they call the father. And they run up to the picture of their father. They bow down, they worship. They say, thank you, father, for this is all from you. I owe my life to you. This could not have been done apart from you. And they bow and, they, and people are clapping and they're clapping. And, and t- person after person goes up there and they worship him and they bow. They say, my life belongs to you. Now I'll try. I work 10 times harder to give my life to you. Now I will, I will work so much harder. I'll kill all of the American enemies. I will do everything I can to defend this great nation because you have done this for me. Every single person goes up there and it's eerie and it's chilling And it's frightening as you watch this thing. And at the end of the movie, at the end of this documentary, uh, Lisa Ling says, uh, kind of her conclusion, is I get this sense that all of these people are not going up there out of faith, but they go up there because they're afraid, because they're fearful. You see, some countries understand this idea of a father being a provider and a protector. But how is it that children lie dying in the streets of the capital city because their fathers are living in the lap of luxury. See, there's something that when Isaiah is talking about a father, about provision and protection, there's something that this one king to come, this everlasting father would have that no other king had in those days, and they longed for it. Not only was it protection, not only was it provision, but it was a care for his people. And every one of Israel's kings would come and they would provide and they would protect, but they wouldn't care for the orphan. They wouldn't care for the oppressed. They wouldn't love them like they would. They lived in luxury and yet still people died. They didn't care for for those who were downtrodden. In fact, the greatest king, the pinnacle, the par excellence king of Israel's days and the glory days, David, he was the one who oppressed the poor. He was the one who took the wife from one of his closest men. They didn't care for their people. And so Isaiah is saying, there will be coming a king 
who you can really call father, who will not only provide, not only protect, but he'll care for you like none other. Suffering children are safe in his arms. There is none like him. And the people say, could it be? Is it really possible that a person like that, could a king like that could come? Is it really possible that somebody like that exists? And Isaiah says, it's true. It's true. He came for you on Christmas Day. That's why we can have care. We can be protected. We can be provided for. And when our senior pastor goes to, to North Korea, he, he told me one time, he said, when I talk to these, so what do you, how, do you, how do you minister to these people? Right? You see the oppression that they live in. You see the darkness of their lives. What do you what do? You do? He says, well, he, he said he got, he, one time, I don't know if this was the last time he went, but he said, I, I was standing in front of these people, and I said to them, you have a father who gives you everything that you need. You love him. You worship him. Because I have a father like that too. He provides for me. He cares for me. He loves me. That's why I'm here, because I came to give that to you. And I hope that one day you can meet him too. See, this is the message of Christmas. We can meet him. We can meet him. See, uh, every other king, even if he was a provider, protector, a caring person, every other king would die. See, these people in North Korea worship and pray to and talk to and honor a God who's a father who's dead. But Isaiah says something about this king. He's the everlasting father. When we pray, saints of God, we don't pray to a God who's dead. The body of Jesus Christ does not fertilize the streets, the soil of Palestine, as some say. But he's alive. And we worship his kingdom will know no ends. His kingdom will know no bound. The majesty and power of this kingdom's king has come to us on Christmas Day. He's the everlasting father. That's the first thing that we see. Second thing that we see, though, is he's the prince of peace. I don't know um, what you think of when you think of a prince these days. You think of Prince William. Prince Charles, they don't, to me, they don't seem like they do much. Um, the biggest news is that uh, Prince William is getting married, right, to some girl who's in England somewhere, I guess, getting married, and it's on all the magazines and, and things. And it's on the Orlando Sentinel because there's talk that they may honeymoon in Orlando. Did you know that? Right? So many people, not me, but so many people trying, I want to get out of Orlando, but the prince and his princess want to come to Orlando. And honey, it's amazing. Happiest place on earth. But um, uh, when I think of Prince, sometimes I think of that. They just kind of this figurehead and don't really do much. But obviously, princes were different in those days. Prince, maybe Prince, Prince of Persia. He's a ruler. He's a leader. He's a fighter. That's kind of the idea. When he talks about Prince in these days, he was a leader, a ruler who would bring about change. And the reign that he would come to bring was a reign of peace. Wherever this prince would rule, his reign would be marked by peace. Uh, any of us need peace this season? Maybe it's an internal peace. You've been wrestling and maybe you grew up in church, but now all of a sudden you feel like uh, I'm beginning to explore the things of the world. And, and as you're living in that place, you've got this, this tension. As you're back here on Christmas Sunday, you're like, ah, I've got this, this, this anxious feeling, this gnawing of which way am I going to go? And, and we're lacking peace. Maybe you, you think about all the Christmas parties that you got to go to, your friend's Christmas party and you got to be dragged somewhere, family members. They, my husband wants to take me here. My wife wants to take me here. i got to go to this company party or all these things. And 
I still haven't bought all my Christmas gifts, and you've got this kind of lack of peace, and you're longing for that kind of peace. Or maybe you're really concerned about the situation in our peninsula, and you're longing for that kind of peace amongst the North and South Koreans, or you're longing for peace wherever it might be, or you've got friends who are in Afghanistan or, or overseas, and you just wish for that kind of peace. When uh, Isaiah writes, he will be called Prince of Peace, what kind of peace was he talking about here? Uh, let me teach you a little bit of Hebrew here. This is pretty cool. If you get this, then you can impress all uh, the Hebrew ladies and gentlemen that you may come to meet. But Prince of Peace, the original Hebrew language is Sar Shalom. Let's try that. Sar Shalom. One, two, three. Sar Shalom. Very good. Okay, so Sar means prince and Shalom means peace. Uh, shalom is a word uh, for peace. And I, I had a, um, a, a pastor back in the day and um, he's out in uh, Tacoma, Washington now, and he would always sign his email, Shalom, and then he would say his name. And you're like, man, why would, he, why would he try and show off his Hebrew, you know, Hebrew language like that and whatever it is? But um, for Jewish people, they still greet each other like that. Did you know that? They say Shalom, and they respond back, Shalom, or whatever it is that they say. But um, you think of this word. It means a whole lot more than peace. Some of us, I, don't, maybe, I think that may be where we get this idea of, hey, I'm, I'm peacing out or peace and I'm out of here uh, from this idea of shalom. But it means a whole lot more than just, okay, I'm out of here like Vladimir. Shalom means something so much deeper than that. Um, when it's over 200 times the Old Testament writers would talk about shalom, but what it means is not just an, an inner peace, like everything is calm, there's an absence of conflict in my heart, but it is a complete and total a wholeness in our lives. That everything that's broken is made right. So every sickness is made well. That's shalom. When someone wishes shalom over another person. It's saying if you're financially broken, you're broke. Shalom is, 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 is wishing wholeness over that area of your life. It's a financial wholeness. If there's emotional brokenness, baggage, if there's emotional pains, shalom is wishing this kind of a peace over you. If there's relationships that are broken, shalom is saying, I wish all of these relationships would be made right and peaceful and well. It is an interweaving. If, if every single object in creation was a piece of fabric, was a fiber, fabric, every part of these things interweaving with one another to form a beautiful tapestry. God, humanity, all of creation, even cats and dogs and animals, all these things weaving together in perfect harmony. That's shalom. And when that happens, we realize that this is life the way that it was meant to be lived. There's no brokenness. Everything is peaceful. Everything is calm. Everything is the way that it ought to be. That's what the prophets were longing for when they longed for shalom. And over 200 times they would pray for this and they would seek this and they would say, such a day is coming, but it seems so foreign to these people. When is it going to come? When is it going to come? Over the past 3,000 years, there have been wars in all but maybe 12 years. All these wars and all this strife and all this brokenness and there's this longing for, for so much more and this longing and this, this, this desire that all of these things that are wrong would one day be made right. It's this sense where there's got to be more. We look at our brokenness, we look at our lives, and we say, you know what, there's got to be more to our lives. You ever feel like that? You look at your life, you look at situations in the world, and you're like, man, you know what, if this is it, if this is all there is to life, then something is deeply flawed and completely, completely broken. And there's a sense, gnawing sense in us that there's got to be more. This isn't right. 
And that was the echo of the prophets. When we say that today, we look at anything in life, we say, you know what, that's not right. Last night, we had a, our youth ministry had a Christmas party, and they had this gift exchange. And I, I was talking in the hallway before this party started um, with a, a, a couple of folks and thinking back to another time when about seven or eight years ago when I was a, doing, uh, when I was a youth pastor, I was, uh, we had another Christmas party, and we had a gift exchange, but it wasn't uh, this, this white elephant deal. It was a secret Santa where we draw, drew people's names, and people would give us gifts. And so... About eight years ago, my beard was a lot longer than it is now. And so someone picked my name, and they decided it would be a great idea. I'm going to have the perfect gift for DL. And so they gave me this gift. And we're all going up there, and everyone is looking at us as we grab the gift. And so I got this gift bag, and I opened it up, and it was a can of shaving cream. This was like $10 max gift. And I was looking in it, and I was like, you know, people do funny things like that. And then underneath, like, the paper, there's like a $10 gift card or something like that. And I'm looking at it, and... I'm like shaking the bag and everyone is laughing and oh, you know, this is really funny. That's so funny. And I was like, it's funny to you, but it's not really funny to me because I paid $10 for my gift and this is like $2. And so I was like, I think about it. And I was like, in my heart, I was like, this isn't right. I got, I forgot what gift I, I bought a really good gift, but this ain't right. There's got to be more. At any time we say this isn't right, there's got to be more. It is Again, an echo of the longing of the hearts of the prophets. This isn't right. Anytime you look at children in North Korea, little kids carrying bricks because part of their daily routine is to do manual labor after they come home from school. You look at that and you say, you know what, that's not right. When you think of places like Haiti where the earthquake hit, people are starving. And so people drive pickup trucks and they say, hey, if you come here, I'll give you food. And they give them food and they kidnap them and they sell them into slavery. You look at things like that and you say, that's not right. Anytime you you look at something in our broken world and you say, that's not right. There's got to be more. There's got to be something more to this world, to this life. This isn't right. Anytime we say that, we're we're expressing a longing for shalom. N.T. Wright says, this desire, longing for that which is wrong to be made right, it comes with the kit of being human. That's part of who we are. Something in us rises up to say, you know what? This is not right. It's not right and it's not fair. Isaiah says there is a prince of shalom who is coming. He's a prince of peace who would come and he would make all of these broken things right. He says, this is the message of Christmas that Jesus Christ came to be the savior of the world, but he came to make everything right. All that was broken. Every relationship, we talked about this two weeks ago, every relationship with God, with creation, with ourselves, with other people, all the things that have been broken, he will come and make right. And it begins with our peace with God. At Jesus Christ came, Romans tells us to bring us peace with God. The peace of God can only come when we've experienced peace with God. And the problem is we long for the shalom, we long for the peace, but we don't want the prince. See, we want the peace, but we don't want to be led and ruled and conquered by a prince. We want to do things our way and experience the peace of God, but it doesn't happen that way. We want the peace of God. We want to have this, this existential, this internal rest, but then we go away doing our own things. He says the message of Christmas is that, yeah, you can have peace, but you don't have it. You're, you, you've got to live in submission to the prince of peace, to the Sar shalom. It's the only way that it can come. It's the only way that it can come. And it comes by grace because this is who he is. The Bible tells us and Christmas tells us that the infinite one, the everlasting one came down and the infinite became an infant. Completely helpless. The one who is our father became a child. The one who would be our provider, our protector, our care submitted himself 
to be provided for, to be protected, to be cared for by a young lady, by a young teenage girl. The one whom we call the Prince of Peace. Later, when he grew up in his life, he was subjected to all that would rob him of peace. And yet throughout his life, he brought peace to everybody that he encountered, to broken people, to broken situations, to places where, where people are going hungry. He brought into the world food and said, this is the way the world is supposed to be. It's not people are not supposed to go hungry. Let me give you a foretaste of what Shalom really looks like. People being fed, people giving in generosity, people loving and giving of themselves so that others, disadvantaging themselves so that others would be blessed. This is Shalom. This is the Shalom of God. This is the peace that I came to bring. When he looked upon it and saw a broken group of a boat of disciples in the midst of turmoil, when the storms and the winds and waves were causing them to fear and they were anxious. He pronounces the shalom of God over them. The wind and waves be still. This was our God who came to us. And the only way that we could find peace with our king is it had to come through the prince. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ took our punishment for us, the punishment that we deserve. The only way that we could have peace, the only way that we could have peace, the only way we could have shalom is if he was utterly gone to war against the father. And God, the father looked upon him and he turned his face away. And we sing about this, that this is amazing love. Indeed, it is amazing that he gave all of himself so that we might have the peace of God, so that we might have a king, a ruler who would care for us and protect us and love us. See, Christmas begins this journey where we say, you know what? Shalom is here. The only way we can experience the peace of God is that we experience peace with God, and then we become agents of peace for God. In the places where we see brokenness, in the places where we see this ain't right, it's those who've experienced the peace of God who go and we say, let's go and make these things right. Let's go and make these things right. Let's go and offer and bring shalom to a world that's broken. And so people see that, yeah, there's got to be more. There's got to be more. And they see through Christmas, through the people of God who understand what Christmas means, we take this message forward and bring the peace of God and the reign of the Almighty into the lives of people. Let's pray together. Let's uh, take a moment to pray and, and just reflect and respond. Because of Christmas, this is our reality, that we could experience peace in our lives. There are areas in your life where you're lacking that peace. Have you surrendered your ways and your will to the Prince of Peace? It's the only way that it comes. If there's no Jesus in your life, then there's no peace in your life. And if you know Jesus, then you will know this peace that passes understanding. Maybe there's areas of your life where you feel like you're being attacked by the enemy. He offers protection. Maybe there's areas of your life where you lack something. He's your provider. Feel all alone in this cold and dark world. A light is shining because he cares for you. Let's take a moment to come before the Lord and just ask God whatever we need him to be today. So ask the Lord God that he would come and he would do that, that he would be that, that he would offer that to us, that we would surrender to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace. Let's just take a moment to pray to God, just in, in silent, reflective, responsive prayer. Just a moment as we seek to embrace who Christ is in our hearts. Let's pray together for a moment. Father in heaven, we thank you 
that you sent your son Jesus to be all these things and so much more to us. All the things that Jesus is, all the things that Jesus does, all the things that Jesus provides for us is a wonder of wonders. And we pray that you would help us to embrace you for who you are, Jesus, not only for the benefits, but also the things that you call us to do and things that you call us to be in light of that grace. Help us to live it so that we might experience the fullness of all that you have for us. We thank you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.